again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 172nd program of Think Again. Think Again is presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change for over 25 years. I'm Jacques Boulet. And I'm Jennifer Burrell. Today we're continuing our talk about the United Nations and how we might approach the building of international peace and cooperation. That's right. Last week we began a conversation about the United Nations as the global body established mid-1945 with the objective to create a more peaceful world. Yeah, and to create a more peaceful world by organising processes and platforms to prevent wars through negotiation and by promoting other forms of meaningful coexistence on a global level. Initially, with 50 nations joining, the United Nations now count. 193 member nations represented in the General Assembly and through its specialised divisions it addresses the large list of issues and predicaments troubling peoples, nations and the planet. Mm -hmm. In the early 90s, at the end of the Cold War, many of us had hopes that the United Nations would finally become what it was intended to be, a global forum where cooperation, mutual aid, peace global development, ecological justice and social justice would be the guiding principles of action. Yeah, and many had hoped, Jacques, that the UN's rules and processes that everyone agreed on would be fully respected. Yeah, but in spite of many positive outcomes, it was not to be. Especially the United Nations Security Council, but also many other United Nations divisions have been undermined their processes ignored or opposed and in many cases defunded. The five permanent members of the 15-member United Nations Security Council continue to be fundamentally at odds along the old East-West divide, using their veto power where needed or simply ignoring majority decisions. Yeah, well, there are lots of examples of UN decisions being ignored. Just think of the invasions of Iraq... Uh, the invasions of Iraq, the wars in Syria or Afghanistan, we have Ukraine and, of course, the current muddle over Taiwan and China. Yeah, instead of the earlier hopes and promises of the United Nations, the last 30 to 40 years have seen a resurgence of nationalism, populism and, unfortunately, increasing violence and abuses by the major powers, especially, as we have talked about a lot, by the U.S., And the West. Yeah, and the West conveniently casts the new divide as a struggle between democracy and autocracy, especially the Anglosphere powers like Britain, US, Canada, Australia. And most recently, the US President Biden has Mm. been really flogging that line of it's all about democracy versus autocracy. That's right. He was very vocal and is very vocal about it. This myth, democracy versus autocracy, was unmasked a few days ago by US academic Jeffrey Sachs, 
at the Athens Democracy Forum. Sachs argued that what matters is a country's unique governance culture. He said that classifying countries according to political systems, such as liberal democracy or not, is oversimplifying and serves only to hide what's really going on. Yeah, and it is hard to often to work out what's really going on. That's right. But Jacques, what, what do you think Jeffrey Sachs means by that? What does he mean by governance culture to start with hmm. and even by the term liberal in liberal democracy because as we know this term in Australia has been hijacked by the Conservative Party so I think the word liberal is always a bit confusing for Australians. Mm. Yeah particularly also as in the US it comes to mean the the, the more progressive ones whereas mm. the Republicans are re supposed to be the more conservative ones but it isn't yeah. that neat. Yeah. So Jeffrey Sachs had the, and I quote, the real struggle so, of... So, sorry, Jacques, I just want to stop you. So mm. you said Sachs argued that what matters is a country's unique governance culture That's rather correct. than the political that, system. So or, what do you think he means by governance culture? Well, for example, that it is different where f there is an ancient culture of uh, of governing places in a certain way, like China, for example, or Russia, which is different from what England became, let's say, two, three hundred years ago and then exported worldwide, even when at the same time it was colonizing as an imperial power lots mm. of countries, but still continue to believe that it was the model democracy of the world. Yeah. So it's all very... So I yeah. see. So it's a governance culture and not what that's, yeah. what's written on the box that's, about yeah. we, we are this system. And how that culture fits into the culture of the people, the, yeah. the, the, the traditions of the people. Okay. So Jeffrey Sachs added, and I quote, the real struggle of the world is to live together and overcome our common crisis, end of quote. A direct reference to what the UN was actually meant to be and do. Importantly, he also destroys the myth that democracies are more peaceful. He says, and I quote again, the most violent country in the world in the 19th century was the most democratic, Britain. Mm. The most violent country in the world since 1950 is the US, mm. end of quote. In our last program, we have already mentioned several instances in which Australia has been engaging in this superficial game of pretense. Yeah, like like a goodies versus baddies movie, which mm. we have had a program about goodies and baddies before, or that's framing right. the world in terms of goodies mm. and baddies. Yeah. And, and that's the pretense that the West is motivated by, I think, but by a wish to defend democracy over autocracy across the world for the good of humankind, like a big Superman shark. Is that yeah. what it is? <laughs> That's what it sort of sounds, yeah. It, <laughs> it's very much ideological. And remember what we referred to last week, the New, the New South Wales Minister's reaction to the United Nations' intention to inspect places of detention like jails. Yeah, he was refusing, that's right, he was refusing UN inspectors access to places of detention as mm. part of the UN anti-torture agreement that's known right. as OPCAT. With, and he made some pretty derogatory comments or dismissive comments about the UN. Mm -hmm. And we did talk about that. And mm -hmm. I guess overall we don't really appreciate 
the United Nations reminding us of our own abuses, do we? No, that's right. <laughs> like our own treatment of Aboriginal peoples mm. or of refugee, refugees, asylum seekers, or our disproportional contribution to global warming and other ecological deterioration. Instead, our leaders like to deflect attention to China mm. in relation to their treatment of, for example, the Uyghurs. Uh, or to Hong Kong becoming less democratic. And what has happened there since going back to China's rule? Uh, whatever we are doing, we are not like them. That's mm -hmm. the message which is implicitly given, of course. The others. Yeah. <laughs> so it all comes down to our own nation's standing, I guess, mm -hmm. and interests above the good of the international community. Mm, and, yeah. if, and if every nation's doing that, of That's course right. it's, a, it's a dead game. It is, it really is. And it really does seem to have reverted to a rather ludicrous debate about the tension between the sovereignty of the individual nation and the common interests of all human beings and the planet particularly. Yeah, and uh, with sovereignty... Um, too often, I guess, referring to being rightfully in charge of a bounded territory or nation and therefore its militaristic defence, yeah. In contrast to more progressive notions of sovereignty that would include things like unity, friendship, peace, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And we talked about that a few programmes ago in August yeah. when we started conversations about a long-stretched process of Australia finally becoming a republic and how becoming a republic would sit with our supposed post-colonial constitution. And we talked about whether becoming a republic could or would change our ways of defending our so-called sovereignty. Mm. And talking about sovereignty, in our earlier discussions, we referred to the US philosopher Jean Bithke Elstein's book titled Sovereignty in which she argued that sovereignty, whether it's personal or national sovereignty, can never be absolute. She created the notion of sovereignty with limits, which is the title of one of her subsec subsections in her book, crucial if we want to understand our role and place as a nation-state within the assembly of states, so sovereignty with limits, mm. especially if we intend to coexist and make decisions in the context of a multinational body like the United Nation, Nations or in any attempt at creating understandings of and joint actions with other nations. Mm. So Elstein comments, and I quote, Personal autonomy, rightly understood, and national sovereignty are achievements rather than presuppositions. We cannot assume, Elstein says, that a nation-state is sovereign until it demonstrates its ability to be independent from the protection of another state, until it can show that it's able to treat its citizens decently mm -hmm. and to foster a vibrant civil society. We need to understand sovereignty as responsibility, mm. end of quote. So, yeah, there's a lot to think about there. I guess the idea is that sovereignty involves responsibility to others, exactly. not just to other nations, mm -hmm. but to its own inhabitants and citizens. Mm -hmm. So I guess for me it implies a sort of sovereignty then um, would imply a sort of moral authority too, not mm -hmm. just 
militaristic or political or economic authority. Exactly, that's what it is. Elstein, we can quote her again, a state is marked as a mature member of the international community, not by declaring its complete independence from every other state or the community of states, and this is important now, but instead requires a willingness and ability to build and to sustain rich relationships with other states and their peoples, unquote. Hmm. So she, she refers to this as a relational ecology of both our personal as well as our political and national existence and self-understanding. It's quite similar, really, to what we have referred to in our programs as living relationally and in a state of what we call interdependent autonomy, where yeah. autonomy can't live without the interdependence and interdependence can't live without the autonomy. Yeah, and calling out the lie of the individual mm -hmm. being supposed to be independently autonomous. That's right. Because none of us are independent. Mm. So I, I guess um, you're referring back also to that was our first program exactly. where we very deliberately um, talked about relationality because we foresaw that this would un be underpinning mm -hmm. most of the subject matter that we're talking about, if not all. So, and just to revisit that idea, it's the idea that humans in the first place humans only exist only exist in relationship with each other and other living things um, in a um, dynamic network mm -hmm. and and humans only exist within systems and contexts and processes that they're part of mm -hmm. yeah and so Jean um, Bethke Elstein did I say her name the yes, right way yes, <laughs> thank yes, you yes. <laughs> so she's so right to apply this insight to nations and states too um, highlighting uh, their need to form rich relationships with other states mm -hmm. and peoples and, and this idea of interdependence evidently requires some humility in contrast to the drive to dominate and have advent advantage over other nations, which I would describe as the imperial or colonist drive, mm -hmm. um, or the, the conquer, pillage and control drive. And that's right, mm -hmm. absolutely. And that therefore we need to think about the whole of Earth, all of states, all of peoples. And it obviously means, therefore, that rather than mere declarations about our sovereignty, we have to act as a mature member of the collectivity of the world's states. Mm. On that note, let's hear Dreams by Les Amazones d'Afrique. <laughs>
You're listening to Think Again on 3CR Radio, 855 AM on your dial. And today we're talking about the United Nations again. What it would take to have global peace and cooperation. And also talking about the meaning of sovereignty in a global context. In fact, we're looking at notions of sovereignty beyond mere defence of national interest or territory to notions of responsibility and cooperation in an interconnected world. Yeah, which, as you say, Jacques, it's what the UN is supposed to be a platform for. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we should stop using declarations about sovereignty to justify our rejection of UN inspections of places Mm -hmm. of detention, which are part of our UN uh, responsibilities that we've signed up Mm. to. Or, or perhaps we should stop using the idea of sovereignty, national sovereignty, um, to, yeah, to to resist the inspections and stewardship of a natural and cultural heritage, for example. Yeah, and mm. telling people to butt out of the ways we're dealing mm. with First Australians, That's minorities right. of people of other cultures. Mm. You know, perhaps we should stop using that yeah. as a cudgel. That's right, and we should act as mature member of a, the collectivity of the world states. And that would obviously require adherence to peacemaking efforts, involvement in foreign aid, and responsibly playing our role in addressing global warming or securing the just distribution of vaccines, just to refer to a couple of instances of of the recent past and the present. Mm -hmm. Being a mature member of the collectivity of world states would also relate to active involvement in efforts to keep the world safe from, for example, nuclear warfare. Mm. And that is where we wanted to take this conversation as the still rather new Australian Labour government seems to carefully but also quite contradictorily change the international stance adopted by several previous coalition governments. Yeah, so first the good bits. The election barely over, the federal election that is, our Mm -hmm. new foreign minister, Penny Wong, frantically crisscrossed the Pacific and Southeast Asian territories to assure them that we're with them, we're on their side and we have their interests at heart. That's right, but she also took pains at wagging her or her warning finger at China and Russia to behave, thus continuing the coalition's rhetoric and the Defence Minister Miles continues to tell the US and the rest of the world that we continue to be in lockstep with them, with the US, and that powers military intentions. Then, without much fanfare, fanfare, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) former PM Morrison's decision to move our embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was reversed. Yeah, and they did that pretty early on. And and, uh, I guess just to recap that situation, having our embassy in Israel moved to Jerusalem under the previous government was controversial in the first place exactly. and really isolated us in terms mm. of what other nations have been doing. That's right. So while both Israel and Palestine claim Jerusalem as their capital, the international community considers at least East Jerusalem to be occupied mm-hmm. territory, i.e. Palestinian territory occupied by Israel. So when the US under Trump opened an embassy in Jerusalem, this pretty much amounted to officially recognising Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, hence the provocation. That's right. And Australia's move to do the same and move its embassy to Jerusalem had been in lockstep with Trump. 
but against the vast majority of the United Nations member states. Mm. Anyway, under the new Australian government, this decision now has almost quietly reversed, and our embassy stays in Tel Aviv. Yeah. And on another action, last week Australia dropped its opposition to the United Nations Treaty banning nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah, while Australia hasn't yet joined the treaty on the uh, prohibition of nuclear weapons, it now decided to abstain after five years of voting no to that treaty. (laughs) Campaigners and Nobel Prize winning ICANN, which stands for the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, had been urging Australia to vote in favour of the United Nations resolution for the Anti-Nuclear Weapon Treaty, or at least at least abstain in order to end five years of opposition. Five years previous, of shameful opposition. Exactly, under the previous government. Importantly, 75% of the Labour caucus, including Anthony Albanese, signed an ICANN pledge that comments parliamentarians, and I quote, to work for the signature and ratification of this landmark treaty by our respective countries, unquote. Yeah, so we may consider this progress, Mm -hmm. certainly given the former coalition government repeatedly siding with the United States and other members of the Anglosphere powers against that treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And you do wonder why Mm. we would be opposing a treaty Mm, like that. That's right. And that's in addition to, uh, that move is in addition, of course, to Penny Wong's reaching out to build respectful and constructive relationships with Asian and Pacific nations and the decision not to unfairly inflame tensions by moving our embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, as I, I also just mentioned. Yeah, but meanwhile, closer to home, the US is preparing to deploy up to six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers in the Northern Territory, a provocative move that experts say is aimed squarely at China. The bombers are part of a much larger upgrade of defence assets across Northern Australia, including a major expansion of the Pine Gap intelligence base, which will play a vital role, and already does, in any conflict with Beijing. And brings Australia into a con- uh, vital role in any conflict with mm. Beijing. That's yeah. right. So you, you really have to wonder what's going on in our own new government, Jacques. Mm-hmm. With Foreign Minister Penny Wong forging friendships with our regional neighbours, while Defence Minister Richard Miles seemed to take us down the hawkish, warring US path. Yeah, what's it, going on? I think it is just... What always is referred to at Albanese or the government of Albanese trying to play the middle, the centre. But this is so contradictory, allowing to put the US to put nuclear capable B 52 bombers on our shores to enable the US to have military advantage against China, who incidentally we are not at war with and supposedly wouldn't want to be. No, well, we wouldn't. Well, lastly, Jacques, um, before we finish up, I'd really like to finish by highlighting that Australia has been baked in war and violence from its inception in the late 1700s. Exactly. That's war against the Aboriginal peoples who had been living here for tens of thousands of Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And there's no 
doubt about it. The country was taken by brutal force from them, and the devastation was relatively quick. And no wonder the trauma is with many Aboriginal people to this day. From past trauma of introduced disease, murder, theft of land, theft of children, loss of family, loss of community, loss of way of life. Mm -hmm. But there is the trauma we are still inflicting. For example, the high incarceration rate of Aboriginal people and the number of deaths in custody. It's a real national disgrace. Mm -hmm. So if we are to have a cultural shift that prioritises the building of rich relationships with states and with people, mm -hmm. um, with that progressive notion of sovereignty, we do well to start with Aboriginal people living here. And I think we all really need to look truth squarely in the eye, the truth of how our country was built on the suffering and devastation of Aboriginal people at the hands of invaders and colonisers. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's look at also how we're all benefiting and and how we are all responsible. Yeah, rather than join the kind of diagnosis uh, Sachs had about the US as the most violent country in the world, we wouldn't want to join or mm. join that kind of a, of a, of a call. No. So in terms of community announcements, the new community quarterly or the new community journal has just uh, printed and come out with an, a, an issue on health and community, which will be available uh, either in soft copy, in uh, electronic copy or in hard copy. And we will launch it on the 16th of uh, November. Yeah, at 38 Pickett Street? No, not there no? really. We will do it with a health centre Okay. in in, in St Kilda and we will give more details okay. All right. next just week. Put that people should save the mm. date. Yeah. Okay, and also there's a protest uh, to demand permanent visas for all those refugees suffering in Australia in uncertainty and that's at the State Library of Victoria in Swanston Street from 2pm to 4pm Saturday, the 5th of November. Mm -hmm. This Saturday. So this Saturday, mm. 5th of November, State Library, 2pm. Thanks for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio and supporting our programme. If you want to send us a message, please mail borderland, email Borderlands, borders at borderlands.org.au. Our past programmes are available on podcast and the 3CR website at 3CR.org. .org.au Meanwhile, please enjoy Milkumana by King Stingray.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.